Okay, let's go ahead and get uh, started this evening. Wednesday night Bible study, Acts of the Apostles, part three. Uh, as you know, we have been recording these. We're going to continue to record them as podcasts. But we're also uh, coming back into the sanctuary for Wednesday night Bible study if you feel uh, okay to do that. Uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. And then don't forget on Thursday night we do a live broadcast of the uh, uh, evangelism class. So we'll be doing that tomorrow. So let's just open with a word of prayer for tonight. Father, we just give you honor and praise and glory. We thank you, Lord, in these times that we live in, Lord. Uh, everything seems to be different day to day, week to week. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you help us to get through all of this and that we keep our focus on you. And so, Lord, I just thank you for those that are hearing this message, whether it be on a podcast, Lord, or those that are here live. We just thank you that uh, your will is done. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you lead us into our conversation tonight. In all of this, we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. So, just a a little bit of a recap, because we didn't meet last week. But we'll be doing the Acts of the Apostles, and the first chapter of Acts is about the promise. It's about the promise of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, Jesus promised, he said, it's better that I go, that I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 1.8 tells us what that gift is for. The gift is to enable us to do ministry. So, in other words, without the gift of the Holy Spirit... God would not be present when we do ministry. And what was happening was things were changing as to how God was going to reveal himself. You know, the Old Testament pointed to the cross, pointed to Jesus. Uh, Then Jesus comes, has his three, three and a half year ministry, goes on the cross, dies, resurrected, uh, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father. But that begins the church age. And so now God is enabling people through the church uh, to be gifted with the Holy Spirit to do ministry. Uh, Then that ministry is to preach the gospel uh, and evangelize and build the kingdom of God. So chapter 1 is about the promise that is coming. Acts chapter 2 is about the promise given. That's where they're all seated together on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and it's described as of tongues of fire. That's why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as a baptism of fire. And again, baptism means change. Uh, you know, we do water baptism because it's it's an outward sign of what's going on inwardly. You lay down the old person, the new person comes forward. That's a baptism, which means a change. Uh, So now we're given, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. This is a change. Because what happens now is now God indwells the believer. That's why when you you ask someone, you say, well, where is Christ now? Where is God now? We always say, well, he's here, you know. And that's where it comes from, you know, Christ in my heart. We know it's not necessarily in, in the heart, but we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so... The important part about this is that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was just given for a, to a few people for a select purpose. 
for Moses to do something, for Abraham to do something, David to do something, uh, for the prophets to do something, or Samuel, the judges. And it was just task-orientated. Once their job was done, then the Holy Spirit was gone. The, it wasn't poured out on all people. Now, when we repent and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit now indwells us. It fills us. And so we now receive power, as it says in 1.8, uh, to be my witnesses, you know, to, you know, in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. So this is what uh, uh, marks Christianity different from anybody else, that Christ uh, dwells on the inside of us. And so we have to understand why, uh, because a lot of times... That idea gets misused, it gets turned around, it gets tweaked. Uh, like now all of a sudden that we have this power that we can now unleash on something. No, that power is only uh, for ministry. It is only to do what God has called us to do. Uh, that's what the giving of the Holy Spirit is for. And we're going to get into that more as we go through this. But just as a recap with Acts, that the book of Acts is the history of about the first 32, 33 years of the church. So what we find out from Acts is when Jesus ascends, goes back to the Father, and then what is the first 30 plus years of the church like? In other words, the foundation of the church. So it's important because now we find out how is the church structure supposed to be? How is it set up? Uh, And then what we find out is that all the epistles of the letters, like Galatians and Colossians and and Ephesians and James, were written during that 30-plus year period. So in other words, as the church was developing and issues rose up in the church, a letter was now written by Paul, Peter, James, or or John, would now uh, written to the church to apply a correction. This is what was going on. So when you lump all that together, now what you have is uh, the model for the church. So in other words, why do we have pastors? Why do we have deacons? Why do we have elders? Why are, 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 uh, what about the, the different gifts? How does all this fit together? So realize, remember that what we're talking about, we're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today, that this is the very early church. There's no church buildings because uh, Christianity is not an official religion. You had to be a, 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 be a, be you had to get that from Rome. Rome, as you know, persecuted the church for hundreds of years. That's what the Colosseum was all about, through the Christians to the to the lions. Christianity doesn't become an official religion until the year 325, and that's when the Emperor Constantine declares, or 324 declares, uh, now that Christianity, uh, all his subjects should be Christian. And I'll probably get more into that later. But at that point, that's when Christianity becomes an official religion where we can buy and sell land, where we can put up buildings and put crosses on them. For the first couple hundred years of the church, we couldn't do any of that. We met in homes. We met where we could. We met in private. Some cities were more open to the church being there. But at any time uh, that Rome felt like it, they could come in and take these Christians and cart them off to Rome, throw them in jail, feed them to the lions. 
Uh, and usually what would happen sometimes is if something went wrong, they would blame it on the Christians. And so they'd go gather a few Christians together and punish them. And uh, uh, that's persecution. That's severe persecution. That's why the church, the early church, has martyrs. You, your, our history is martyrdom. That's That's been our, our, our history uh, right from the beginning, Jesus Christ, obviously. So, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. What's happened now is Jesus has ascended. Uh, he told them about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. Peter gives the first sermon explaining what that is all about, uh, why the, the Spirit was given. And then now Acts chapter 3, it's like now they're back into daily life. Okay? So Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Um, which was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were going up to the uh, t- to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now notice, they're Christians, they're believers in Jesus Christ, but again, you don't have a church building somewhere. They're doing what a normal devout Jew would do. They were, they're going into temple. They're continuing that practice of going to the temple. And then verse 2. It says, And a certain man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Now, the Beautiful Gate doesn't exist anymore, but it was one of the largest of the gates, and it was like the main gate that people would walk into going into the temple. And it was referred to as the Beautiful Gate because they say that over it, they had beautiful relief done uh, over this gate. It was supposed to be very, very, very beautiful. So they just referred to it rather than say it was the East Gate or the West Gate. They just called it the Beautiful Gate. But that was like the main entryway going in to the temple. So this man who was lame from birth, could not walk, every day was taken to the temple to beg alms. So in other words, if you lived there or you visited the temple maybe once a year, twice a year, and you went into the beautiful gate, chances are you're going to see this guy. He was there all the time. Okay? Now verse 3 to 8. And then we'll talk about it. It says, And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, which is their form of money. Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, For me, there's a problem here. I remember when I first read this, or maybe it was the second or third time I read it, it caused a problem for me because 
The problem that I saw was that if this was the entrance into the temple and this was the place where most of the people went in and Jesus went into this temple and that man was laying there, why didn't Jesus heal him? Why didn't Jesus say anything to him? And it troubled me a bit. But what we have to understand is the church now is what we call, and I put it up here, Christ, Christ, it should be an O there, Christocentric, which means Christ-centered. So that whatever we do as a church comes through Christ, through the work of Christ, what Jesus has done. In other words, we are an expression of what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? He taught. Uh, he healed. Signs. Wonders. Uh, you know, all the things that, that, that Jesus did. So we are now Christocentric. We follow in the teaching of Christ. And so what I came away with, again, this is from the book of Steve, chapter 4, verse 3, that, that Jesus specifically left him there so that someone from the church, now filled with the Holy Spirit, could carry on the work of Christ. Because we're supposed to be Christ-centered, right? Okay, so, verse 3, when he saw Peter and John going into the temple, he began to re- ask them to receive alms. This is what he would, he would do. But notice what Peter and John do. Now, this is after they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes people say, uh, when, they're, when they're believers or something happens, they say, you know, I don't believe I, I said that or, or I did that. You know, they, they ministered to someone or they prayed with someone or they did something. And they said, I just don't do that. But, you know, the prayer was there. The opportunity was there. Well, that's how the Holy Spirit works on the inside of us. So here you have Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, look at us. He looks at him, you know, in a particular way, getting his attention. You know, he says, look at us. Something's going to change. You know what it's like when you're trying to teach somebody something, or you're trying to show something, somebody something, and they're not looking at you, and you say, "Look, look at me. Get what I'm saying here? Something was about to change. And so he said, look at us. And so he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from, from them. You see, he had a want, and he also had a need. He wanted alms, but what he needed was to walk. And so they say, look at us. And he looks at them because the only thing he knew how to do was to beg for alms. And so when they get his attention, he just expects they're going to give him something. So he looks at them. But Peter said, verse 6, I don't possess silver and gold. Knowing what the guy wanted. I do not possess silver and gold. But what I do give, I give to you in the name of of Jesus Christ and Nazarene walk. In other words, through Christ. 
I don't have silver and gold, but what I give you, I give you the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is why we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We do things in the name of Christ. Because later on, uh, Paul tells us we are ambassadors for Christ, which means we do things in the name of. I do not possess silver and gold, but what I give to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ in Nazarene. In other words, he's making sure that this man understands what's about to happen to you is from Jesus Christ. It's not from them. See, this is the way the Holy Spirit works through us. It's like when we go evangelizing or something and we're, we're talking with someone and, 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 and you're leading them to the Lord. You say things a lot of times you were not prepared to say or you didn't think you were going to say, but that's the work of the, the Holy Spirit. Or when somebody asks you to pray for them you know, or whatever it is, and you just open your mouth and pray, and God begins to to uh, manifest that way. He said, what I give you, I give to you the name of Jesus Christ. And then, he just doesn't leave him there. He grabs him by the hand, because he understands, this guy does not know how to walk. This guy doesn't know how to stand. This guy doesn't know anything related to that. So he grabs him and pulls him up. Verse 7, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. Immediately, his feet and ankles were strengthened. Two things are going on here. This man is going through a change, but so are Peter and John. They're going through a change. Because this is now signs and wonders working through them in the name of Jesus Christ. Immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened, and with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Uh, Leaping and praising God because he understands who healed him, God. Okay, a miracle. Uh, Let me chase this rabbit real quick. Miracles. Sometimes people ask the question, well, why doesn't God just heal everybody? Or why does this person get healed and that person didn't get healed? Or it happened one way for them and a different way for them, or things like this. Signs and wonders and miracles and things prove the existence of God, and they are done to give God glory. Not to give us glory, but to give God glory. And if God is in the process of doing something and showing something, now think about it for a second. What a display for the church. Because here they've just had one sermon from Peter. And now there's people that hear about these these Nazarenes, as, as they were called, the early church was called followers of Jesus from Nazarene. They see them all of a sudden now raise this man up who they saw every day at the temple every time they went in the temple he was there begging and now he's leaping and praising God that's got to have a profound effect on everybody that saw that and where was it done? in the temple in the old temple in other words the old system he said now Jesus is the temple Jesus is where the praise goes to. Jesus is, is, is the one. And so in the midst of their 
religiosity in the in the in the midst of their traditions, in the midst of their understanding about God, a miracle occurs, and it's a marker of the early church. Thoughts, questions on that? And explain it some more here. So he enters the temple. Uh, he's he's leaping. Uh, this change goes on. Uh, Verse 9, it says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement, again, signs and wonders, at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. You know, not to make light of this, but I somehow, whenever I read this thing, whenever I teach this passage, I think of the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. You know, when they picked him up, you know, and he was stuffing and he couldn't walk. And it was like they had to help him walk because, like, he, he didn't know how to use his legs. And so I just picture this, this man still clinging to, to, to Peter. He's done something he's never done before. But yet he's still clinging to Peter because it's like he's got to get his sea legs, as they say. You know, he's got he's to get balanced. He's got to get upright. But all the people uh, uh, are seeing this. So, you know, when you read this and you understand this, I think Jesus purposely left this man there so that the early church uh, could demonstrate signs and wonders in, in Jesus' name, you know, to those who needed to see signs and wonders. You see, some people will believe because of, of the word. Some people will believe uh, because they have a need and they're drawn to God. Some people will believe because of the miracles, the signs and the wonders. That's just the way we're wired. That's just the way people are. And so uh, uh, um, signs and wonders here from the early church. Thoughts, questions on that? We're good. Now what happens is, and this is what's interesting, that in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell and people were amazed at what was going on, Peter gets up and preaches a sermon to now tell everybody this is what's going on. So the second sermon to the church begins right here in verse 12. Peter's now going to deliver a sermon to the church explaining what just happened. Okay? So this is what we're going to be reading. It's a sermon. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety... We made him walk. Now notice, he gives all praise and honor, you know, glory to God. He says, why do you look at us like we did something? Or we're so devout. You know, that's, that's not what's going on here. And then he goes into the Old Testament. Why? Because he's in the temple. He's with a bunch of Jewish people who understand the Old Testament. This is verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
he visits some of the same theme that he visited in his first sermon. He says, you know, to those people that were watching the Holy Spirit fall, and he says, you know, you guys were the ones that put Jesus on the cross, by the way. Uh, Verse 14, But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be granted to you. Now think about the people that are hearing this. They see this miracle, and a lot of them probably were there, or they were in agreement with it, or someone heard it afterwards, and all of a sudden, it's like, talk about an aha moment. You know, that's that's got to be the biggest aha moment you're ever going to get. And not knowing what's going to happen next. Like, okay, if all of a sudden now they realize that was Messiah, that was the Christ, and we just owned him, what does that mean to me? So this is going on in the middle of this sermon. He says, verse 14, But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Again, Jesus' resurrection you know, was seen by many, many, many people. He taught for 40 days after he was resurrected. And that's, a, that's a, you, you get that account in Acts chapter 1. So, I mean, it just wasn't a one-time shot and, you know, just a few people saw Jesus. Jesus was seen by a lot of people. And it's, you know, he said a lot of you are witnesses of that fact. Verse 16. And then he says, on the basis of faith. Now, this is a big switcheroo. Because everything before was on the basis of the law. What did the law say? What were the commandments? What did we have to do? We had to do this. We had to do that. We had to do this. We had to do all these things according to the law. Now the change is on the basis of faith in his name. Meaning in the faith of who Jesus Christ is. In the faith of his ministry. In the faith of the signs and wonders that he did. In the faith of his death burial, resurrection, ascension on the basis of that and the basis of his giving the Holy Spirit on the basis of faith in his name it is in the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know in other words, this guy again wasn't some stranger to people they they saw him all the time they probably knew him on a first name basis many of them you know, probably gave him you know, alms almost on a regular basis Uh, He was strengthened this man whom you see and know the faith which comes through him has given him his perfect health in the presence of you all. (laughs) In the presence of y'all. And so Peter starts preaching this sermon and a sermon okay, a good sermon explains God and shows what God is doing and then relates what God is doing to the listener or the learner and then now applies an application to it. And you know, a sermon isn't just a, a feel-good whatever. It should be Christ-centered, Christo-centered. It should be about God, what God is doing how God is moving, how God is acting, what God expects, and then it's how do we now come in line with what God is doing. That's the outcome of a sermon. 
It's just not, okay, this is what God did. Yeah, yeah, yada, that was great. Now let's give him a round of applause for that. No, it's how do I relate to that? Uh, what does it say to me? Uh, and so he's explaining uh, and, and he's outlining what's, what's going on. Uh, and then what he's doing, he's preaching for conviction. Because, you know, he's going to go in into a second about repentance and stuff. But a sermon brings them to the point of conviction. Because remember, this man that you see walking, you see this man that is strengthened, it was done by the one that you rejected. Boom. That hits you in the heart. It bypasses the brain. It goes straight to the heart. What have I done? What have we done? Uh, uh, and now you, he says on the basis of faith not by the law in other words you can't do enough right things to erase what you did now faith comes in uh, you know, this faith that's extended to Jesus Christ we'll get into it in a second so verse 17 and 18 he says now brethren I know that you acted in ignorance just as you rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So he starts to let them off the hook a little bit. He gives them a little breathing room. He says, yeah, I know you acted in ignorance just as your fathers did or your teachers did, which kind of is like, okay, maybe it's not going to be so bad. But then he says, but the things which God announced, verse 18, beforehand, by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. In other words, everything in the Bible, everything that God was pointing to, everything that God was, 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 was showing us, Jesus has fulfilled. And uh, uh, I was looking at something yesterday. I was, I was, I was researching something. And... I came across uh, a thing about chance. And, you know, in the Old Testament, there's 300, I believe it's 375 uh, uh, references to Christ, to who he would be or what he would do, that he would suffer, the Son of, you know, God, all, all of this stuff. There's about 375 of them. Now, to fulfill three of those by chance, three, the odds on that are something like 1,000,000. I think it's past a trillion. I can't even print it can't pronounce what, whatever it is out there. Okay? Just three of them. For all 375, it's something like this times 10 to the power of something like 280, whatever. In other words, the numbers just keep going, you know, to the next planet, the next star out there, wherever it is. That's, that's how, how uh, impossible it is for all these things to be fulfilled. 
And so this is the beauty of the Bible, but it's also what brings conviction. Because if you can get somebody to understand that God foretold all of this, and, and, and God showed us, and when it says the prophets, it just doesn't mean uh, Ezekiel or Daniel or whoever you look to as a prophet. Anyone that wrote uh, that God used to write is, is a prophet. A prophet is someone who says, thus, thus saith the Lord, and repeats uh, what, what God has said. That, that's what a pro- prophetic utterance is. It's not something that somebody makes up that you don't know anything about. It's something that God has already said or God has delivered. And so what he's saying is, you know, the Bible's pointing to the cross. It's pointing to the cross. The Old Testament, everything is pointing to this. And now that Jesus came, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and now that the gift of the Holy Spirit has come back down, we're now in the church age. Until Jesus comes back. We're going to get to that in a second. But when the writers of the New Testament, Paul especially, all he's doing is saying the Old Testament pointed to the cross and the work on the cross, and this is what it means now that Jesus has come. So in other words, until Jesus came, the Old Testament was not complete. It couldn't be complete. Because you didn't have the end. It's like the last chapter wasn't there. The last segment was there. It's, it's, it's like a mystery, and they just leave you hanging, and they don't tell you what happened. See, we're blessed because we know what happened. But the authors of the New Testament here, when they write the New Testament, they're just taking everything God has said, bring it through the cross, and now apply it to the church. Nothing changes, nothing, uh, God's word doesn't get changed, but the, but the way the way that we approach God, uh, the way that we atone for our sins is now through Christ, our sacrifice, rather than doves and animals and stuff like that. He becomes our, our sacrifice. So, verse 19, after preaching the Old Testament, he says, repent therefore and return. That's what repent means. Repent means I was going in this direction, I was wrong, and now I'm going to turn, I'm going to go in this direction. What it means in regards to sin, I was living my life as a sinner. Now I have acknowledged my sin, I repent, and I'm going to do the best I can to go into a different direction. So this is what he says. Again, this is the sermon. He's convicting the heart. Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We'll get to that last part in a second. Repent and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Because what did he just do? He convicted them. And they're right there, their acknowledgement is... We rejected Messiah. What's going to happen to us now? And he says, if you repent and return. In other words, if you realize I made a mistake when I didn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, this is going on today. People that aren't saved, what are they doing? They're making a mistake. They don't understand that 
Jesus sent from God is God pay the price on the cross for our sins. They made a mistake. They believed in something else. They believed in, oh, we're all going to go to heaven. Or they believed what this person wanted to say or that person was say. Or they didn't believe at all. They made a mistake. And so now they have the opportunity to repent and to return where? To the cross. To return to the word. To return to what God is saying. So this is what he's saying to them there. And then now he transitions and he brings in what I pointed out over here that Jesus is with the Father now, but he is going to return. So he says, verse 19, Repent, therefore return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that you, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, now listen, heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. In other words, and it says it in other places in the Bible, but this period of the church age where there's a harvest of the church is going to come to an end when Jesus returns. And when we did our study in the book of Revelation and stuff like that, we know that pertains to Armageddon and the wars and, and, and all that kind of stuff when Jesus returns. But he says, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. In other words, this Bible, this word of God has to be, be preached to who? To all nations, to everyone. It's got to be preached out there. And then once that is accomplished, once God's work is done preaching uh, uh, to, to all the nations, to all the earth, whenever that time is, the appointed time, Jesus will now return. To do what? Judge the living and the dead. We find that out later. So that's talking there about the return of Christ, because which was big because they understood that Messiah was going to restore all things. He was going to make everything right. So that's why the apostles <clears throat> were asking him, you know, Jesus, is, is it this time that you're going to restore the fortunes of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, you know, my father. Because Jesus came first as the humble servant, as the lamb slain to pay the price for our sins. They were looking for a Messiah that was a conquering king that was going to overthrow Rome that was going to make everything good. Uh, they were they were going to get back to the like the days of David and Solomon. They were going to be the the people on earth, and yeah, that that's what they wanted. That's what they were signing up for. And you know, and, and he says, and so this idea of restoration rings a bell with them. And so he says, realize that you're going to receive, you're going to repent and receive Christ now, but also when He returns, you're going to be in good standing. That's what, that's what he's telling them. Uh, let's see. Verse 22. Then he, again, refers to Moses because he's talking to, to, um, to Jews here. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. Um, Moses, again, said... The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. In other words, another Israelite, another Jewish person. And you'll give heed to everything. When he says like me, Moses, this is theological. Who was Moses? 
Moses is a redeemer. Let my people go. He's the one that went to to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, uh, let my people go. Uh, and he led them out of bondage. He led them out of out of their uh, life of slavery. And he took them. Uh, he he was supposed to take them all the way to the promised land, but they rebelled. But he redeemed the people. And so he's he's saying, God is going to raise up another redeemer like me. Christ is our redeemer because he redeems us from our sin. He redeems us from our slavery and our our bondage to sin. He redeems us. He draws us out. So he's making that connection with those that would understand Moses and and, and understand what, what that would mean. Uh, verse 23. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now what he's saying in here, I'm going to read 23, 22 and 23 again. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed, meaning attention, pay attention to everything he says to you. And then 23, and it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet, okay, from God, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This is talking about those that do not uh, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will be destroyed. They go into the lake of fire that we find out later. And then in verse 24, he says, and likewise... All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward announced these days. And notice he says from Samuel and everyone that spoke, they announced these days. They were pointing towards this. Because what does Samuel do? Samuel anoints David as the first true king of Israel. And, you know, uh, uh, it talks about, uh, you know, Jesus is our king. And, uh, you know, from the, from the throne of David, you know, uh, shall arise so 24, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. And it is you who are the sons of the prophets of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in all your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Taking them back right to Father Abraham, who they would understand. He says, you're all part of that. Then he says, 26, for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's his sermon. Though he's saying that you that are the seed of Abraham, uh, and where it says, and you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed, you that that, uh, the prophets spoke, of the coming Messiah, that they spoke of who he would be. You were the ones who should have beheld his glory. You should have seen him. You should have known who he was. You are the ones that sent him to the cross. You are the ones that rejected him. But because of God's love and God's mercy, if you're willing to repent and return, God will bless you. God will return you back to where you're supposed to be, where you will be blessed with all those families in 26 for you first in other words he's speaking to jewish nation because jesus said to what to the jews first then the gentiles 
He said to you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. In other words, to get all of you to repent. And so he's taking this miracle that happens to this man who was born lame and who in their sight was now raised up. He takes it and does a marvelous sermon on it. He doesn't go into this man of this and this man of that and this and that. He says what you saw was through the power of Christ. And this is what the power of Christ is. It's redemption for the lost. It's redemption for those who are sinners. It's redemption for those who have not heeded the word of God. And if you're willing to return, if you're willing to repent, then you are now back in that position of being blessed. That's why he quotes uh, Genesis chapter 12 here, you know, in Abraham, and in you and all your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. So he takes them right back into that. And so the sermon, they see something, he takes them directly to God. He doesn't dwell on what they saw. They saw it. They, you know, he doesn't make a big thing out of that. What he makes a big thing about is God and God's power. And then he says, and here's where you are in all of this. You've rejected him. But here's what you can do. You can receive him. If you're willing to look at yourself, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to turn. And this is the story of the Bible and this is the story in the preaching and the teaching of the church. It's repentance. and salvation through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, want, we turn it into other things. But notice again, he doesn't make a big deal over the, over the man. They saw it. They got it. He takes them, boom, right to Christ. That's the sermon. Christ. Power of God. This is what he did. This is what you should have seen, what you should have known. Uh, he's, he's preaching to their heart. He's preaching for conviction. He's not trying to uh, do an analytical mind game with them. He goes straight to the heart. Because we're convicted not in our mind, we're convicted in our heart. Because we can change our mind. You get convicted in your mind, you hear a sermon, you go, oh yeah, I guess that's me, but you don't do anything about it. By the time you're in the parking lot, you've forgotten about it. He said, ah, yeah. But if it's in your heart, now now you're wounded. And you need that wounded healed. And the only way it's going to get healed is through Christ. So, thoughts, questions on that? Make sense? Hopefully. So, and by the way, if you're listening to the podcast, don't forget, you can write in and you can ask questions and uh, email them to me. And I will see to it that your questions get answered. We can answer them uh, like this, or I can even send you a private email, however you want to do that. But uh, we want to make sure that we get your questions answered. And so next week, the fruit of this, of this first sermon, Peter and John get thrown in jail. Preach a good sermon, they put you in jail. But the power of God is at work in all of this. You know, but it's, it's like, even today, you know, the church today, not to get political, 
But the church today is under attack from different sides. A lot of people are upset. You know, things that the governor said, well, you can't do this in church, you can't sing, you can't this, you can't yada, yada, and, you know, we're going to shut you down and all that stuff and say, well, you're persecuting, you know, and, you know, Jesus told us don't be surprised when you get persecuted. They persecuted him, but they're going to persecute us. It's what we do in the midst of the persecution. And what do we do in the midst of the persecution? The same thing these guys do. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. That's the message. We preach the gospel. In the midst of whatever it is, we preach the gospel. So, we good? Let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for the acts of the apostles, Lord. We thank you for the power of the scriptures. We thank you for the revelation of the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that uh, Peter and John weren't expecting to be used by you. They were just going to prayer. They were just part of their normal routine, Lord. But out of the midst of the normal, supernatural happened. And so, Lord, in the midst of our normal, supernatural can happen. So, Lord, help us to be aware of things that are going on around us. Help us to uh, uh, realize that you are still at work, no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, uh, no matter what people say. And so, Father, I just thank you. And, Lord, I just ask that you continue to bless this study in the Acts of the Apostles, and that we would learn uh, how the early church was established and what it is that we are to do to be as the church of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we just give you thanks and praise and glory and honor for all of this. And in Jesus' name we pray. The church said, Amen. Amen. See you all next week.